0: your finances will leave a long-lasting impact on your family. After all, you only retire once. If you're looking to discuss all things pertaining to your retirement, you've come to the right place. This is Retirement Matters with Michael Stewart. It's time for another edition of Retirement Matters. Walter Storholt here alongside Michael Stewart. He's the founder of Crystal Lake Tax and Financial with an office in Crystal Lake, Illinois. Michael is also the author of Purpose-Based Investing, Nine Lessons to Rescue Your Retirement from Wall Street, available on Amazon. And he has more than two decades of experience as a financial planner. We're going to tap into some of that knowledge on today's show. Before I tell you about what's coming up today, first, a quick hello. Hey, Michael, how are you doing? How are you doing, Walter? Doing very well. Looking forward to what we've got on tap. Today, because we're going to not only answer a great question from Richard coming up here in a few moments about some of the recent tax changes, we've got a headline to cover. And in a few moments, we're going to ask a very important question. How do you know blank? We'll fill in that blank with lots of different items and ask, how do you know how much income you're going to need, how much money you should have in the bank, all sorts of things like that. And we'll pick uh, Michael's brain a little bit on how we should be answering those kinds of questions. That's all coming up on today's edition of Retirement Matters. But let's dive in and see what's happening across the news world and some of the headlines out there. And we've seen lots of different headlines about this, not only just recently, Michael, but this has been a topic, I think, of discussion for the past couple of years now. But recently, Target became one of the latest major companies to significantly actually take the action of raising its minimum wage. They're up to now $12 an hour, with the goal of being at $15 an hour around the near future, or around the corner. Do you think, looking for your opinion here, that the rise in minimum wage is a good thing or a bad thing for the economy?
1: So on the surface, who doesn't like more money, right? right? We could always (laughs) always use (laughs) a little extra income, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, but this is a hot topic in both, not only just the news, but also we have got a significant amount of business owner clients of mine. And it really, it's a double-edged sword. First, every American deserves a living wage, you know, and to be able to better their circumstances. So in this regard, raising the minimum wage won't push people out of poverty per se, but it will put more food on the table, help them pay some other bills. So on an individual basis, that's good. But, and it is a big but, is where's the money going to come from? And what are the unintended consequences, the things that aren't being discussed today? You know, on where the money is going to come from. We know who that is, who's really going to pay for this increase, the business. No, they're just going to pass it on to the consumer. Everything you buy is going to become a little bit more expensive. Business owners aren't going to eat the cost. They're going to pass it along with the purchases of their goods and services. And in addition, we're already seeing this with McDonald's, with their automated order kiosks, grocery stores, with a lot of the self-help lines, and even just where they, you know, they'll scan the RFID codes on there, and then you can just walk right through. Even Amazon and distribution centers, the businesses are turning to automation to reduce the headcount long term, and this may result in less jobs, not necessarily better-paying jobs. And it's the reason that manufacturing has been coming back to the U.S. shores. Notice I didn't say manufacturing jobs, just the physical manufacturing plants themselves. Hmm. That's They're high-tech, they're automated, they operate with about 75% less staff on average than they did 20 years ago. Now, another one of these unintended consequences is the roll-up impact on your entire payroll. If that cashier that was making $10 an hour is now getting $15 with the minimum wage increase, what is the person's pay grade above that was making $15 before get paid? Do they get 20 now? What about the person above them, the assistant manager, whomever it would be that was at 20 does he or she go to 25 30 Where's that extra 10, 20, 30 percent of payroll increase going to come from? You know, now a conversation for another day might be a more important one is, you know, how do we as a society and even the educational system train or even retrain lower skilled workers or young workers that don't have the skills necessary for tomorrow's jobs? So they're not just happy getting $15 an hour. But $25.50, 20, where they're viewed more as an asset to a company rather than an expense. You know, so on the surface, the increase in the minimum wage, I get it. People should be paid more. We just have to be, need to be cognizant of the unintended consequences within the business cycle that come with it.
0: Feel like that sentence could be said about so many different things in the financial world. Beware <laughs> of the unintended consequences. Those are wise words to live by, I think, in, in many different ways. So That's very good. That's what's happening in the headlines in the financial landscape. Hopefully that gives you a little bit of perspective when thinking about raising the minimum wage and sort of the uh, ripples and other impacts that it may have. We always love getting your questions here on the show. If you'd like to have a question featured on Retirement Matters, we encourage you to go to CrystallakeTax.com and submit a question through the website. That's CrystallakeTax.com, and we'll feature it here on the mailbag that we do each and every show. Today's question comes from Richard in Elk Grove Village. Uh, Richard says, Will the tax changes that have uh, recently been in the news have a big impact on my retirement funds in a couple of years? Is there anything I will need to do now to address that issue?
1: Yeah, Richard, that's a great question. And I'm a big fan of Outgrow Village. That's where I grew up from. So I'm, I'm big happy about that. That's, that's a, um, it's a good
0: name for a place to live. Just it's, a- it's just fun. Absolutely <laughs> it
1: is. The largest thing, and th- these are conversations that we're beginning to have with some of our tax clients and many of our larger financial clients on there, is that there are opportunities and several strategies that you can do right now, given the tax impact and some of the changes that take effect this year. Now, the largest is taking advantage of these lower tax rates. These are some of the lowest tax rates for personal income tax that we've had in decades. And the recent legislation made business tax cuts permanent, but personal cuts expire in 2025. So that's just seven short years from now. Now, we're encouraging clients to use this as an opportunity for Roth IRA conversions, strategies that we call tax arbitrage, which is paying taxes now at a lower rate rather than worrying about it higher in the future, and really what we're doing is we're taking money from those taxed forever accounts, those 401ks, traditional IRAs, and shifting them over, paying a little bit of tax today at these lower rates into the tax never accounts, whether it's a Roth IRA, whether there's some kind of insurance arbitrage, whatever it happens to be, there's opportunities to exchange for tax-free future income on this. And not only do these become tax-free income later in retirement, but there's also some tax strategies where by doing so, It may even make less, if any, of your Social Security taxable. Many times withdrawals from IRAs and 401ks can make up to 85% of your Social Security income taxable, and that's in addition to at 70 and a half, even if you don't need money out of these retirement accounts, the IRS is going to force you to withdraw a certain percentage of your 401ks and your traditional IRAs as what they call a required minimum distribution. So they can finally basically get, the government wants to start getting their taxes on some of these assets. And those forced distributions, regardless of the tax rate, they're treated as taxable income and then cause you some financial pain because now for every extra dollar they're forcing you to take out of those retirement accounts, it might make another 85 cents to dollar of social security taxable as well. So sometimes the idea is that, you know, we may be in a lower tax bracket in retirement and that doesn't always play out that way. And that's why we use what this strategy that we call a tax-free retirement strategy to get clients out there. Now, let me say this. Even if Congress does, because there's talks out there that Congress wants to make these individual tax cuts permanent, at least for now, I think there's a common sense approach that we need to look at just as Americans. The first thing is you still should take advantage of these strategies, because when you look at our ballooning national debt approaching $20 trillion and expect it to grow, not only because of these tax cuts, but other government spending, and you take a look at all of our underfunded entitlements, how we're going to pay for Social Security, how we're going to pay for Medicare with over 10,000 new retirees every day, do we honestly think that taxes are gonna stay low? Of course not. Congress has been kicking this can down the road for decades now, and at some point, we gotta pay the piper. And that pay the piper comes in the form of higher income taxes eventually.
0: Yeah, you gotta think that, uh, you know, we've bought a little bit of extra time here before we have to pay the piper, but it is going to come, and when it does, I think it's gonna be a rude awakening for a lot of people because we all think taxes, we all think in our own little bubble, taxes are really high. But historically, as you've pointed out before, we're actually pretty low tax brackets and, and tax rates. There's a lot of room, just like interest rates, right? There's a lot of room to move upward in terms of taxes.
1: Absolutely. And what, what you're going to see, there's, you know, a variety of different taxes out there. And we share this with clients, especially, you know, clients that we have that are moving to Florida and Texas and Arizona, you know, to get away from some state income tax is, you know, not only is it the federal taxes that you have, but if you look around on a daily basis, we're taxed to death. You know, so you could say oh, I'm only in the 15 or 20% tax bracket, but then you add another layer of 3 to 7% regardless, depending on what state you're in. Then every time you go buy something at the grocery store, there's a sales tax. Every time you get gas, there's gasoline tax. Or, you know, there's a fuel tax. Everything that you do, for the most part, involves the government getting some additional layer of tax. So everybody's focused on the federal income tax of saying you're in the 15, 20% tax bracket, whatever it may be. But the reality is that for most individuals, you're paying 50 plus percent of your income into taxes. They're just stealth taxes that are on a lot of the purchases and things that you make in the services, not specifically on your income.
0: Almost makes you uh, yearn for the debate of just IRAs versus Roth IRAs. Do you want to pay tax on the seed or on the harvest? Whereas the rest of life is pay the tax on the equipment, pay it on the road that you use to transport the equipment <laughs> and pay for tax exactly. on thinking about the equipment, you know, all those different kinds of things. So No, you're 100
1: percent correct. Yeah
0: pretty funny to look at it that way, but uh, extremely important to look at it that way, too. Great question, Richard, and that's going to be something that a lot of people certainly will have getting more and more on their radar as they get closer to retirement. What's the tax issue going to look like? That, of course, is where Michael Stewart and his team at Crystal Lake Tax and Financial specialize, and they can help you kind of figure out what the right actions and moves to take are with your financial plan to make sure that you are maximizing your opportunities in there and uh, limiting your exposure to some of that tax risk. If you want to reach out to Michael, you can do so by calling 815-526-3092. You can ask him your question directly at 815-526-3092 or find us online at crystallaketax.com. That's crystallaketax.com. And that's this week's mailbag, part of the program here on Retirement Matters. So we turn the page to the meat and potatoes of today's program, and we ask the important question. How do you know blank? One of the most important questions, really, that you can ask when it comes to your financial plan. The blank is where we fill in the crucial elements, the building blocks of financial planning. So today what we're going to do is cover some of those blanks that you need to cover, some of those questions that you need to ask yourself. And Michael will point us in the right direction of what those answers should sometimes look like. First of all, Michael, we've got to ask ourselves, how do you know how much income you're going to need when you retire? Why is that such an important question to answer when it comes to financial and retirement planning? Why all this focus on income?
1: It's a great lead-in. Primarily, it's because income's what pays the bills. You know, so, you know, your stocks don't pay the bills, your bonds don't pay the bills, you know, selling investment shouldn't pay the bills. What pays the bill is actually earnings, interest, dividends, cash in your pocket. So, you know, if if you, you know, Google how much income should I have in retirement, you know, you'll probably find things that say, you know, typically about 75% of your pre-retirement income, you know, some kind of basic nomenclature that's out there but the reality is it's, it's a personal thing for everybody. And, you know, and I'll give you a couple examples of clients that we have. But you know, really, it depends on the debts that you actually enter in with retirement, what the different sources of income that you have are. You know, do you have a large mortgage? Do you need additional income? Do you have pensions? How big is your Social Security? Are you maximizing your Social Security depending on what age you wind up taking it or coordinate it with your spouses? Do we have a large portfolio to draw from? You know, those are all going to be the things that we kind of put our arms around from a planning process to say, okay, what are your income needs given your situation? If you were to retire today or whatever point that is, what are our debts, our obligations, you know, kind of what, are, what what's our cash flow needs? And I'll give you two examples of clients that we've been working with for over five years now is on one of them. There's a client that, you know, they retired with over a million dollars that they rolled over to us, you know, and they've got a nice $700,000 house on the outskirts of town. And, you know, they're living the high life and, and, and they're doing well for themselves, but on their side, One of the issues that they run into is they also retired with a $400,000 mortgage and two luxury car payments. And a kid that's still going to go to college, even though they've already retired, they still have upcoming college expenses. Their income needs are substantially different than another client of ours that has about $250,000 with us, but also has the husband and wife get Social Security, he gets a former union pension. So those income sources alone satisfy what their obligations are because they have no debts entering in retirement. So it's a contrast between two dramatically different asset numbers, if you will, in lifestyles. But you have one actually living a little bit better with a little bit greater peace of mind than perhaps the other one does.
0: It's an important question to answer, certainly, how much income you're going to need when you retire. Now, I know a question that should be asked that has probably a pretty wide range of answers, Michael, is when it comes to things like an emergency fund or how much money is going to be in the bank. I bet you get everything from, you know, oh, we've got $1,000 in our emergency fund versus, oh, we've got, uh, you know, $100,000 sitting there in the bank. Because of such a variety of answers and solutions for people, how do you know how much money you should have sitting there in the bank? Another important question.
1: Typically, when someone asks me how much money should we have saved in the bank, you know, for emergency funds or just in savings, you know, not independent of the actual assets and things, investments and retirement accounts, you know, my basic answer is more, you know, uh, more is more is better than less in some regards. But, you know, in reality, the things that we share with clients and everybody's circumstances, once again, are a little bit different. But one of the things, so if you're still a working person, you're still out there, you know, you're still working for a check, typically at a minimum, I encourage you to have three months of basically net. So whatever your take home pay after taxes is, at least three months, because that's going to bridge you for a couple different things. First, any major emergencies that happen, you know, the house needs a roof or the water heater goes out or the car needs a repair, there's resources available. You're not going to have to put it on the credit card or any of those kind of things. Also, if there happens to be a job loss in the household, then you know the mortgage is still going to get paid you've bridged you know a quarter of the year that to get yourself back on on track and and do that now if you're a retiree that could be one month that could be two months because really it depends on your sources of income if you know if you've got a pension or you've got social security and those are a large part of your income or your portfolio's kicking out a, a set amount of interest and dividends on a monthly basis so really the income's going to come in no matter what's going on in the market or with the fed or any of those kind of things then really you don't need as large of a bunch of savings sitting there earning nothing in the bank, you know, and I'll I'll give you an example though. So on our practice, the very first thing, once we get to that second meeting and we, know, we've got the statements and we've agreed, we're going to put a plan together. The first thing that I ask them on the bank side, so we're not even talking about investments, we're not talking about income is what's your sleep at night number? And they'll kind of look at me weird and they'll say, you know, what what does that mean? I said, what's the amount of money you need to have in the bank so you could sleep at night? Meaning, regardless of if the market went up ten percent this month or down ten percent this month, you know, regardless of how your assets are positioned, what's your sleep at night number? Just knowing that you can look over there, you know, whether it's a login or get a paper statement, whatever it happens to be, that you've got X amount of dollars in the bank, it's just going to let you sleep at night a little bit more soundly. Now, and the thing is, I'm not even going to argue with that number. It's your number. So, you know, we've got a 63 year old retiree as a client lives on fifty thousand dollars a year. So that's fifty thousand dollars total of income and has $200,000 sitting in his money market. And he said, that's my sleep at night number, four years of income. Okay, do I think it's prudent? Do I think it makes sense? Absolutely not, but that's the thing that allows us to do other things with his portfolio, knowing that he's built in that cushion. We also have a 67 year old client, he's got over $120,000 a year of income, he's got $30,000 in the bank. Why? If, I, if we ask him, he says, if I needed it, within a couple of days I could get money out of my portfolio. So there really is no wrong answer you know, kind of a boilerplate answer would be at least three months, you know, if you're still working a a regular nine to five job, And, you know, at least one to two months, depending on how consistent your income is.
0: Pretty uh, interesting to see just the variety of answers that often or responses, maybe not answers, maybe responses is the better way to put it. Sometimes it's a fine answer. Sometimes there might be some tweaking or adjusting based on the situations. Need to see how those different scenarios play out. Another important question you should ask yourself about your retirement situation is, how do you know how much risk you should be taking with your investments? Always comes back to risk, doesn't it?
1: It always does. I mean, in, in my book, Purpose Based Investing, we devote an entire chapter to how much risk you should take. And really it boils down to take the amount of risk you need to take, no more, no less. You know, we we use a, an equation on there where it's, you know, TR equals I plus G. And you know, to break that down, what it means is the total return you need to achieve over time for your entire goals equals what you can earn in income. So kind of interest dividends, you know, regular paying like clockwork income, plus any growth that you might need from the market. And the reason we kind of put it out there and I'll write it on the whiteboard when we go through it is, I said, because with most advisors and brokers you talk to, they all want to focus on the G, they want to focus on the growth, but sometimes growth becomes losses and that can kind of derail your plan. So what we say is, okay, if we need a 6% total return and we can get four of it from interest and dividends, then really we only need an extra 2% from that growth component. So we don't have to take a lot of risk in order just to get, just get a little kicker, plus any downturns not going to dramatically blow up our plan. You know, now if we need 10 or 12 or some other crazy percentage, well, then that's a whole different conversation as it relates to risk. And what are the pros and cons? And, you know, how does it impact our goals on a go-forward basis? But, you know, typically in our practice, you know, we plan for the worst and hope for the best. So we sit back and say, okay, if this is the plan we come up with, and this is our worst case scenario, could we live with it? And if we can, then chances are over time, we're going to do better because we haven't taken too much undue risks so nothing's really going to blow up the plan for us. But at the same time, the benefit of that is that we know we're going to be able to, if our retirement date is two years away, we know we're still going to be on track, regardless of what's going on in the markets or interest rates.
0: In the last podcast, Michael, you told us about a situation where somebody had uh, gotten ripped off or at least had felt a little duped from working with a financial advisor as uh, you went through their portfolio and found really high fees that they were exposed to and a lot of missed opportunity and just a lot of outflow of their money when it really didn't need to be set up that way. I think that's a good reminder, by the way, if you haven't listened to that podcast, go back and listen to the previous one that has that great story in it that Michael detailed for us. But given that experience and the fact that that's not an uncommon situation, I think we have to throw this into the list as well. If we're talking about important questions, how do you know if the fees in your portfolio are too high? And notice we're not saying are there fees in your portfolio? It's are they too high for the what value you're getting?
1: No, absolutely. When it comes to the fees, I'm a little bit more passionate on this than than maybe some others out there. The funny thing is when a lot of individuals come in for investment reviews so that you know, we're coming in for that discovery meeting where we're just going to have a conversation about what they have, what they immediately want to do is start pulling out statements and start showing us different things. And, you know, and say, okay, the investments and what are your fees? What are your performance? All these kind of things. And, you know, immediately I'll just kind of take a step back and be like, well, the investments are important, but they're only part of the overall financial picture. But eventually, when we get down to the investments, I'm a huge believer in that the value that I add to my clients isn't did we pick the S&P 500 or the Russell 2000 or the aggregate bonds or emerging markets, any of those kind of things. The value that I add is to help you keep your fees low because a dollar in your pocket is a dollar extra return for you. If you can keep the fees low. In addition to that is, can I make you not make bad decisions in good markets and bad? Can I stop you from being greedy and having expectations that might be a little, I guess you'd say a little unorthodox or a little heavy, or can I stop you from making bad decisions like selling out at the bottom of a bad market or those kind of things. And we can manage that by managing the amount of risk that we take and, and putting our portfolio together the way that's supposed to be. But the reason I go back on the fee side is, Typically, you know, I'm a big believer that you pay for the advice, you know, so we have a 1% asset under management fee, we don't charge commissions, we're fiduciaries. So we're on the same side of the table as our clients. It's just a 1% asset management fee. And all the investments we put in all of our securities portfolios that are actively managed, whether it's on the risk side with stocks, bonds, mutual funds, whether it's on the, the insured side, The thing that we try to do is keep the fees to a minimum because, yeah, I want you to pay me that 1% asset under management fee, but I also want you to feel that you're getting value out of it because you're actually getting something more than a product. Today, the products, the index funds, the stocks, the bonds, you can go get those on your own if you're comfortable and you're a do-it-yourself investor. So there's no value in that. So let's keep those investment fees low. The 1% that we charge clients has less to do with the investments. It actually has more to do with the, the ability to get financial planning and advice all built into that same 1%. So in, in my eyes, anything more than one, one and a quarter all in and that's investments and advice is too much. You know, unfortunately what I, what I've seen when clients come in, they're like, Oh, I've got these managed portfolios at you know, big firm A and big firm B and you know, the, the advisors charging them one and one and a half percent as an advisory fee. And then they're giving those funds to mutual funds you know, actively managed mutual funds that are charging them another three quarters to one and a half percent. So all in clients are paying about two and a half, three percent. And the mutual funds actually doing the managing of the money. The client could have went and bought that mutual fund on their own. So I always ask them, like, well, what's the value the advisor's bringing? Is he helping you with tax advice and tax planning? Is he helping you with estate planning? What kind of risk management do you have going on, you know, from a financial planning standpoint? And the reality is they're not getting any of that. You know, the broker's just holding the door, charging an advisory fee to pass that money management on to somebody else. So, if we can cut other layers of the fees out of there and keep clients down to just one, one and a quarter, but they're paying for the advice, not the product, to me, that's the best way to be.
0: So important to kind of decipher a lot of this information, boil it down into these different categories, income, money in the bank, risk, fees inside your portfolio. When you start isolating these things, the picture in kind of a cool way can become a lot clearer. But then there's this sort of one last essential question we can certainly ask ourselves, this fill in the blank of how do you know? And that is, how do you know if an advisor is going to be a good fit for you or not? Michael, there are a lot of advisors across the country. And when I say a lot, I mean, there's thousands of people with the title of financial advisor, whether they deserve the title or not, they've they've got it. Uh, that's another discussion for another day. So how do you know if this particular advisor is going to be a good fit for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I really think that it it really comes down to the relationship that you have with them. You know, are you hiring somebody to sell you a product or are you hiring somebody to give you advice? Because that's what the whole point of an advisor is. You know, a broker will sell you something. An advisor is going to give you advice that just might end up in a product, but it's going to be based on the answers that you you gave them. You know, some of the things that that I I think the biggest compliment I always get, whether it's at a workshop when we do an estate planning or Social Security workshop or just individuals that come sit across from me at the conference table is at the very end. I'm like, you know, was this worth your time? Was this worth you investing that hour to sit down with me or attend this workshop? And the biggest compliment, and I love hearing it on a regular basis, is that, you know, what? I get it now. You took the most complex things. I've never understood this, whether it's Social Security, investing, doesn't matter what the topic is. And now I get it. It's kind of a eureka moment that they're having. And they say, now I know what I need to do. You know, whether that's work with us or not work with us, you know, that's neither here nor thou. But the key thing that I like about getting that is that we've actually educated them and brought them to somewhere. Maybe other advisors or brokers in the past haven't, you know, so is the advisor a good fit? I think, you know, right away. You know, he talks to you or he she talks to you, ask you questions that resonate with you, shares what their fees are on the open, shares what the, the amount of risk they want to take with you. Can they show you on a piece of paper not only what you already own, but why you own it? You know, many times clients come in and they got these statements and I'm like, oh, you know, why'd you why'd you choose fund A or B or product A or B? And they're like, I have no idea. You know, the, the, he just set by it and he showed me a brochure or a mountain chart or something, you know, and they don't know the risk. They don't know the fees. There's nothing attached to the, it.
0: The brochure so, looked pretty, right?
1: <laughs> no, a- absolutely. And, and unfortunately, you know, that's, that's kind of a crutch for a lot of sales guys. You know, if somebody needs a brochure and a mountain chart to show you why this makes sense for you, then, you know, run through the door because they're just trying to sell you something. You know, to me, if if it's all about product and performance and you got a product pusher, a true advisor, somebody that's talking to you about taxes, estate planning, you know, some of those tax free retirement strategies we talked about earlier in the podcast. So you can take advantage of recent changes, you know, covers financial planning topics with you, provides a good level of service. That's how you know you have a good fit. If you're if you're not getting those kind of things, you got a product pusher. You don't you don't have a true advisor.
0: Absolutely. And if you would like to talk more about these kinds of things with Michael Stewart and the team at Crystal Lake Tax and Financial 815-526 3092 is your number to call. Again, that's 815-526-3092. He's also online at crystallaketax.com. You can tap into about two decades of experience as a financial planner, two decades of experience of knowledge that Michael has gained uh, over the last uh, several years to help people like you better prepare for your financial future, for retirement, to develop that relationship. I like the fact that, Michael, I think you serve more of a consultant role in addition to an advising role. I think there's a lot of power in that role of of consulting, making sure that you're making the right choices. Are these things truly in your best interest? Those are the kinds of questions that, that you're pondering, that you're keeping at the front of the mind, and then helping, obviously, remind folks of the other things we've talked about. How do you know if you've got enough income? How do you know if you have enough money in the bank? All these kinds of things are important to address in the context of your overall financial plan. So very simply, if you've got still questions remaining about your financial situation or your retirement, always a great idea to reach out. Ask those questions to Michael Stewart. See what might need to be done. Talk to him and his team. 815 526 is that number, or you can go online to crystallaketax.com and tap into all the great resources there on the website as well. Michael, thanks for your help as always here on the show, and uh, we'll look forward to the next podcast with you.
1: I look forward to continuing working with you, Walter. Have a
0: great day. You do as well. That's Michael Stewart. I'm Walter Strohhold. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time on Retirement
1: financial situation and needs. Please contact us to obtain our disclosure brochure relating to the services offered by Sound Income Strategies LLC and consider its contents before making any decisions. Where quoted, past performance is not indicative of future performance. Sound Income Strategies LLC does not represent or warrant that the contents of this program are suitable for you from a compliance, regulatory, legal, or any other perspective. We shall have no responsibility for your use or non-use of the program or any portion thereof.